Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Diego Arumbila on the show. Diego is transitioning into the role of Vice President of Educational Transformation at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, following over five years as a managing partner at Transcend, where he collaborated with educators nationwide to reimagine learning environments. His journey into public education began in 2005 at Summit Public Schools, where he served in various capacities, including classroom teacher, founding principal, and chief growth and innovation officer, driving the school's shift towards personalization and scalability. Additionally, he founded Go Public Schools Fresno, an advocacy nonprofit focused on innovative school models. Diego's commitment to educational change extends to his volunteer roles on several boards, including the California State University System and Summit Public Schools. With a background in politics and degrees from Harvard and Stanford University, Diego resides in Fresno with his wife and two daughters, actively contributing to the educational transformation in his community. We discuss a lot in this conversation, including status in education, Teach for America, social science, how much time administrators should spend in classrooms, summer break versus year-round school, reducing teacher turnover, off-ramp schools, poverty's role in educational outcomes, expensive education consultants, the orange theory, flipped classroom, whether Fresno Unified is too big, and much more. Please enjoy our conversation, and Baker will take us there. In the U.S., Fresno's best! Fresno's best. Diego, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Depending on the food that we're looking for, we grew up here. So Mexican has always been my go-to. Cucas, which is down in Tower District, right by my parents, is a go-to. We're now up close to Fig Garden. So Don Pepe's is pretty amazing. We also, my girls, I have two daughters and they love sushi. So we go to Wasabi here in Fig Garden. So much so that the the girls are known from the time they were like five and six. They've been known Mm. at Wasabi. So those are some of our go-tos. When we fancy it up, we love Annex Kitchen or Cezanne. Is sort of like a cooler, hipper, but we we don't do a lot of that, but mm. they're great. So when you say sushi, you know, sushi is kind of a fluid concept in Fresno, I find. And a lot of the, sometimes people want to go to sushi and they'll get there and everything on our plate is fried. And I'm like, well, wait a second. So what does sushi mean to your daughters? They they straight up eat raw fish. So they go, their, their typical order is salmon nigiri. They, they're, they're all salmon all the time. So it's salmon nigiri, salmon rolls, salmon roe. So they actually eat the big fish eggs. And then my daughter, my older daughter does a, a rainbow roll. This is, but we are not the like, oh, we go and get, you know, chicken teriyaki or like a, you know, a chicken teriyaki roll. No, yeah, this is, yeah, it yeah. is, it is raw fish as, okay. as sushi. Did they, did they, did they come out of the womb just ready for raw fish or was this a, was there an educational program in like, oh, hey guys, I know this isn't cooked, but it tastes really good. Um, They are weirdly adventurous in some ways, but then like won't eat sandwiches. So we <laughs> lack adventure in others. You know, the idea of putting things together just has never been their jam. But yeah, they, you know, they, my older daughter eats oysters when we, when we cook uh, I do steaks a lot at home. For the longest time, they asked for steak floppy, which just means like as close to rare as possible. <laughs> so they they certainly have some adventurous, elegant, costly, you know, food preferences. But then they also just love top ramen and and you know, all the basics too. There's nothing more charming than bougie kids. And I, you know, I, my, my wife was not the biggest oyster person. And then I have to thank Cezanne ultimately for showing her what grilled oysters can do for you. And yeah, I find myself talking about that place too much these days, but that's just kind of the nature of it, I guess. We're, we're trying um, the brunch there. They've got a new brunch. So we're going on Sunday, uh, oh. my wife and I with, with another couple to try the Cezanne brunch. Uh, the menu looks amazing. I will need to get a report on that. So we're going to talk about a bunch of education-related topics because that's your area of expertise and uh, you know mine as well because I work in education. And I think we have some intersecting interests and I'm going to 
try to put you on the spot on a number of you know hot topic education issues and see Great. see how you respond. Uh, but I want to start with you first. So I know you attended Ivy League universities. How is working in public education perceived in those environments? At a place like Harvard? Yeah, or Stanford or wherever. Yeah, yeah. So so maybe I'll start with, I grew up here in Fresno, loved Fresno, went to start at Heaton Elementary, go Bulldogs, like started as a little Bulldog, graduated from Edison, go Tigers, and then got to Harvard, wildly unprepared for the rigor of Harvard, even though I was a really high-performing student in, in our system and just didn't know sort of what that was going to take. I've I've always loved kids. I've always been ready to give back. And yet when I was at a place like Harvard, the idea of leaving there and then going into public education was sort of beaten out of me. And so I didn't. I, I went and did a whole different job. And it took me about a year and a half to realize, wait a second, I actually love kids and want to do this work and, you know, sort of what they want be damned. So it, I would say going to a place like Harvard, um, the idea of, of getting into public education was not something that that many students were thinking about, talking about. And, and there was- Because it's a status equation, right? You know, there's right. not high status associated with the profession, and this is something we deal with. And I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. And I think, you know, in some ways, that's what Teach for America was trying to do. I don't that's know right. how efficacious it was in terms of long-term teachers. It's kind of maybe kind of like the Peace Corps before you go work in corporate law, you know, you do something nice and then you go make your bank and then get your, you know, brownstone or whatever. I, I just, for me, it, it's frustrating because we, we talk about this problem, we talk about the education problem, but then we also, you know, play these status games as well. And so it's like we're talking out of both sides of our mouth is what it feels like. Totally, totally agreed on every part of that. And and I do agree that TFA, I'm old enough that I was on the very front end of TFA. So it wasn't yet, it hadn't infiltrated most campuses to, to be this pervasive piece. It's a great thing to get more highly qualified people in. But I think that the sales pitch of TFA, as far as I understand as an outsider, still is do this for a couple of years. And yeah. isn't it a nice thing? And the reality is teaching is an awesome job when you're set up to succeed and too many teachers are not set up to succeed and it's so desperately needed. And, and so in some ways, I think TFA is, is sort of selling it short and just suggesting, no, just do this for a couple of years. And that's just the pattern you see from so many through that program. Yeah. And I know you taught social science for a while. I'd be curious, what, what, What's one thing you think you wish social science teachers emphasized more in their curriculum or in how they taught about the world? Ooh, so many pieces. I had a professor when I was going through my teacher ed program at Stanford who used to talk about it. He said, every history teacher should teach students how to think like a historian. And I loved that approach. And, and what he meant is the job of history is not to learn the one static thing about the past. It is to do what historians do, which is to look at all of these different competing understandings of how the world has happened, is happening now, and to make an educated, rational, reasonable statement of what your understanding of, of how it worked and why. And so... I love that conception because the reality is living in a democracy, that's what we actually want so many people doing is to look at all of the sources around them and make a reasoned approach rather than to say, go listen to Fox News or MSNBC. And your only choice is to decide which of those two to listen to and then take the truth. That can't be our our path as as citizens, as as folks in this democracy. And so when I was teaching, so much of what I tried to do is to arm my students with, it's your job to make sense of the world. And to do that, you have to approach everything a little bit critically and, and you need to find your truth. And it's not my job to tell you what that is, but it's to teach you how to take in a bunch of information and, and make your own judgments. And I wish we did more of that rather than what year did the Civil War start? Okay, fill that in on a on a sheet and then move to the next thing. 
Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's this online writer named Tim Urban who just put out a book called A Self-Help Book for Societies. And one of the things he talks about is we spend a, so much, an, an exorbitant amount of time on kind of what we believe, but not how we believe. In other words, hmm. what what process led us to that particular belief system? And he's got all these kind of hilarious cartoons that he associates with each of these things. And, you know, I spend a lot of, you know, I, I, I when I used to be in the classroom, because I'm a librarian now, but when I was in the classroom, I would always try to ask students, how do you believe that? And get them in the habit of asking how you believe it, which is another way of asking what is your sources, you know, for yeah. what is your basis for what you believe? I love We could talk about this for a long time, but I do, I do want to jump to the next subject, which is charter schools. You know, as someone that works in the public school system, charter schools, and then there's also a lot of associations with juicing numbers and just basing things on how many kids can we shove through the college pipeline. What was your perception working in them? And are some of those associations unfounded? Yeah, great question. I think there are two pieces to this. So let me see if I can tackle it in two parts. The first is like, what's the role of charters in the broader public school piece of this? And, and then the second is like, how are we measuring what's happening in the measurement side, et cetera? So on, on the first side, I'll say I ended up teaching at a charter school. I was a principal in a charter school network. And I came to that purely out of a love and desire to impact public education. And that's the place where I thought I could do it best. And so I think a lot of folks are like me in that they end up in charters out of a desire to create change in public schools, right? I, I don't think I ever would have gone to teach at a private school because I would have said, no, that's just solving this like niche problem. And so there was this hope that what charters could do is sort of have more flexibility and freedom, prove some things out to be true, and that we would find ways to bring those innovations back into the broader public sphere. In reality, I don't think we've seen that to be true. We're not seeing things sort of get incubated in charter spaces that are then more broadly. I don't I don't think. I think there have been small pieces, but but by and large, I think that's so in that way, I don't think the promise of charter schools of being this like incubation and and market changing force have have played out. On the other side, when you think and talk to families though, because so much of our public education is geared around where you live, for families who can't afford to move, families like mine, who just, if my public school is not working, we can just move to a different part of town and find a different public school that might be working. For so many families, that is not an option. And so charters still do play a, a role, I think, in, in providing avenues for families just like those. And until we can make broader scale change, I think there's still a role for them to play. So that's that's my perception of, of that first piece of it. On, on the second side of, you know, goose in the numbers and, and, or just what measurement looks like. I think in that, what we find is that most charter schools, I think are most high performing charter schools are efficient, better versions of roughly still not great schools. And they have found ways to take 40% proficiency and turn it into 60% proficiency. But at times that was through a just, we're going to drill and kill this. At times that was through, if you're not on board, we're going to find ways to get you out of the school. Uh, and so too many times it was through efficiencies of a of a an outdated system rather than true innovation on a system or much deeper learning. I don't think at scale we've seen charters really move the needle on on that other piece. And many charters, the one that I used to work at included, were college for all schools that have actually gone back. And I now chair the board of the old charter network I used to serve. And through that work, we've been revisiting and we've adjusted our mission to shift away from college for all as sort of a an important milestone of what we were trying to move towards. But now we've said, no, that's not actually the right measurement tool. And instead, we're trying to meet every kid where they are and, and help them thrive. So in that particular charter school, you moved from being a teacher to an administrator. And I'm curious, now that you're 
kind of seeing things at the macro scale, how long do you think, or how, what would be your ideal amount of time for an administrator to be in the classroom before they make that transition? And attached to that, why are there so many gym teacher, former gym teacher principals? I don't know the answer to the second one. Okay. Uh, I do find it's the the role I, my most previous role that I had, I got a chance to work with principals around the country and golly, a lot of them came out of PE or coaching. So it, 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 and, and I found myself pretty surprised by that. So I don't know the answer on the first one. I don't think a year or two is, is enough because I, I, I was in the classroom seven years that did, I feel like I got enough time under my belt to feel quite good in the classroom. I mean, I don't know how long you were in the classroom, Jordan, but, but it is a job even seven years in where I was still learning stuff and challenged. And, and so that all felt, there was still so much room for growth on the teaching side, but I did feel like I had enough under my belt to really feel like I had that part down. And I had enough chops to then be supportive as an academic leader when I was walking in classrooms. And, and I think that should be a key role of a principal is to be an academic leader and support. And so I had enough um, gravitas with other teachers to then say like, hey, I actually know what I'm doing. Whereas if I had only been a year or two in and then I was doing classroom observations, I know if I was a seventh year teacher and had a second year teacher and now a principal telling me, here's actually what you should be doing. I'd be like, hmm, that seems weird. But I wonder if a 20 year teacher would say the same thing about me as a seven year. Yeah, my kind of rule of thumb is like eight to 12, because I do think once you've hit a certain point in your teaching career, it's kind of hard to pivot in in, in that way to an administration role. That's a very different job. And and I, I think, you know, we can talk about leadership training in a, a, a little while, but I think the challenge with that job is being a bureaucrat and also being a leader at the same time and how you manage those two very different vocations, you know, that are integrated in one job. But I do think that there is, I agree with you. And on that note, uh, what percentage of time do you think administrators should be in classrooms with teachers? Way more than most administrators find themselves in classroom. I don't yeah. know that there's a right answer and and it depends on like the size of the school and and who else you have on your leadership team. But just more is, is would be your answer. More, and, and I keep coming back to this idea of the vast majority of principals with whom I worked when I was coaching principals, co coaching superintendents, and, and we were working through things, we would be helping them try and bring new innovative practices to their school. And one of the first questions we'd ask is, well, when you're in the classroom next, you should be watching for this and then providing feedback. How often are you seeing teachers? And I can't tell you the number of times I had a principal say something like, I've already observed them this semester. <laughs> and I'm like, that can't be right that you literally have one observation per semester. So then I was wondering, like, who is helping that teacher, not through an accountability practice, but just through a everyone benefits from coaching. So like, who's coaching that teacher? And, and if it's not the principal and you're like, great, we have like... Deans of academics, fine. But then I guess I wonder, like, what's the principal doing? Why are they making the money they're making if not to do the thing that's the core job of that school, which is educating kids? So more yeah, is, I, is I like that answer. More. Yeah, I like that. Let's say I made you kind of the education czar of, of the nation and you got to choose whether we were all in a year-round school model or in a traditional school summer off model, which would you choose and why? First off, I, I accept your your invitation <laughs> to become the education czar. I'm in. If you have that power, let's let's do this. I don't have a great answer. I guess what I tell you is the the educator in me says year-round. So many benefits to it, right? I think the the language that most folks are using now is a balanced uh calendar, a balanced school year, right? The vestiges of why we have this long summer break are kind of ridiculous. So in, in that way, I would say the educator in me says balanced school year all, all year round. The parent in me 
is like, man, th there are actually some real hiccups to childcare solutions that Summers have found a way around that unless everyone went to a balanced school calendar and then sort of the, the, the world responded. But right now there are solutions for summer for kids. And as much as we in education hate it, a job to be done by school, and I think the pandemic showed this, is a place for kids to go mm -hmm. such childcare. that parents can go. And yeah. and I hesitate to call it childcare because there's so much more that we do in the classroom, but that is a job to be done by school. I need a place for my child to go that I know they're safe. And in the summer, we have all of these pop-up solutions to support that job that needs to be done. And friends of mine who have led year-round schools, balanced calendar schools, have really struggled. Families really struggle in those calendars because it's like, cool, what do I do for the three weeks my kid is off in like October when there are no summer camps, there's no like programming at the school. There's And so that's I guess if I'm the czar and I get to control everything, I'd say everyone go balance school year because that's just better. But that is that is a hiccup right now for schools who are who are trying to move that way. And, and it's tough on families. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. The other thing that is a factor is teachers. They also enjoy these large breaks. I think they would like the, the kind of the more periodic breaks as opposed to one large break for at least their mental health. But it is something that plays a role in reducing burnout. My partner's doctorate, she looked at teacher burnout in El Salvador. And so I, you know, I, when I was reading her dissertation, I was, I was also teaching and having a difficult time. And I wasn't dealing with gangs in El Salvador, but I was dealing with just the regular burnout experience of educators. What, what do you, maybe point to one or two things you've seen that have been effective at reducing turnover with teachers, getting them past that five-year mark. Yeah. So one thing that Summit, the old set of schools I used to work at, one thing they did that I adored, I'll highlight. And then a second is a little bit more ethereal, I guess. Okay. Uh, so let's start with the Summit thing that I thought was great. And a little bit, this almost ties back to the balanced school year all year round. So Summit has a practice called, originally it was called Intercession. Now it's called Expeditions, where during the core part of the school year, students are taking courses and their uh, elective course, rather than being taught for one hour a day, every single day, is now taught four times a year for mm -hmm. intensive two-week sprints. So the end of each quarter is a two-week fine arts elective sprint. So it's like, great, you're doing musical theater rather than going to musical theater every day and then doing a performance. You're doing two weeks and then putting on a show at the end of the two weeks. If you are learning how to do you know, digital arts, great, you're learning how to podcast, then you're actually producing some podcasts and then those are out the door. During those same two weeks, what your core classroom teachers are doing is actually getting a two-week break from teaching. So it's a different subset of teachers who are teaching those courses. And so as a history teacher, I then was off of day-to-day -day teaching for two weeks, which allowed me to recharge in a way that, you know, from being in the classroom, September's not tough. I mean, any day could be tough, but but the hardest times were often when it's like, I'm just in the middle of this, like every single day, five classes a day and tomorrow's another one. Yeah. And so that, that break in the middle was amazing. It allowed us to do really effective intermittent PD. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing like very targeted, okay, I was struggling with this over the last seven weeks. I get some support for the next seven to eight weeks. I'm just like really working on that thing. And so I would say in general, that sort of intercession expeditions experience is one that kept folks in the classroom and feeling less burnout around those pieces and more support, which I think so often is a piece of it. And then my, my more ethereal answer, which, you know, take it or leave it. You heard me say earlier on our call, 
I don't think teachers are set up to succeed right now. Full stop. I just think the job we are asking teachers to do is damn near impossible. And until we can sort of wrap our arms around that and really try and make this a much more attainable job, I think what you're going to find is a slew of people who desperately see what young people need, desperately want to do better by them, are amazingly talented, and sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And, and I just think a big part of education has to be how do we get back to a place where teachers feel like it's truly gettable to, to win with more students than just a handful each year. Because so often what I hear from teachers is like, I just can't help all of them. And so I just, these are the 20 I could I could support this year. So I do everything I can for my class, and then I target supports to the ones who I think I'm most likely to make a real difference with. And that feeling of letting people down is always hard, especially for folks who get into a giving profession like teaching. And I think that eventually eats away at so many folks and, and is part of what's leading to burnout and turnover. Yeah. And then, you know, once you, once you get someone burnt out and they're in the classroom, there's nothing more dangerous than having a super burnt out teacher with kids with trauma and going through challenges with poverty. And, you know, that's that's a whole different subject. I OK, time for more hot button stuff on net. Do you think school boards have had a positive impact on our education system or or not? Not. Not. Why? Um, trying to give you a shorter answer than five minutes. It's another way of saying local control, right? And yeah, obviously we I, know the downsides of, you know, more of a top-down system, but there's also downsides to a local system as well. That's right. I just wish, I think elected school boards too often have some other interest than the best education that kids need and deserve. And that's fine. I understand politics and I'm not bemoaning anyone who sits in those seats. It's incredibly challenging. When you have a good one sitting in the seat, I, I'm the first person, I will set up time with them and just thank them from the bottom of my heart. It is a thankless, hard job. And golly, they are focused on so many things that may not be in the best interest of kids. And I think that should just be everyone's fundamental first question. And so too often I have found that either you have folks who get onto school boards who know very little about education, and as such, yet are the key decision makers around this. And, and so that can be problematic or who know some about education, but maybe have other interests or, or areas that they're focusing on. And as such, just may bring those in. And, and so I, I too often believe that local school boards suffer, members of local school boards suffer from one of those two. So when you see a great one, you can tell the difference, yeah. but, but it's, too often, I've seen local school boards across the state suffer from one or the other. Okay. We're going to take a break from this more heavy subjects and go to my favorite section, which is called overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw a bunch of things at you. Tell me whether you think they're over or underrated and why. The first one is the orange theory, over or underrated. I, I don't, the orange, like orange theory, the, the workout yeah. place? Yeah. Oh, I love, I, I am... For, for your listeners who can't see me, I'm in workout clothes because I'm going there later. I love Orange Theory. Uh, I think it is underrated and everyone should do it. So what's, what's the premise behind it? You wear a heart rate monitor. It is personalized to you. So they don't say run at a seven on the treadmill. They said run until your heart rate is at 84% or more because that's when you know that you're pushing yourself. So for someone next to me, that might be five. For, for me, that might be eight. And that number has changed as I've gotten more in shape. And so it's extremely personalized. So in that way, it's great. The other reason I think it's great is because I'm a very good rule follower. And when I go to the gym by myself, I don't do nearly enough. But when I go there and they say, for two minutes, do this, I can say, yep. Got it. And then they, for the next 90 seconds, they tell me what to do. So I like simple and following rules and, and that place helps me do it. 
Fantastic. Next one, core knowledge. So there's a core knowledge foundation. There's also a bunch of books. The premise is kids need core knowledge first in order to have abstract thoughts after. A bit of both. So I would say on, on a base level, there's some really interesting stuff out about the science of reading that I'm I'm sure you've been following. But for, for your listeners, I would say so much fun stuff is coming out now where we're showing that if if young people don't have some like base understanding, it doesn't matter if they can sound out the words, they're going to struggle to comprehend the reading. Mm-hmm. If we can give them a better sense of science and history and the world around us, they actually become significantly better readers. So in that way, I would say yes, core knowledge. On the no core knowledge, I don't know that I'm fully bought into, we all need one set of things that everyone's learned. And and that sometimes feels a little bit 1984-ish to me. And and I'd rather avoid that path. Got it. Next one, uh, me and Ed's pizza. Oh my God, I'm I'm completely bought in. I mean, I think this is a Fresno thing. I will say my wife who is not from Fresno, yeah, she hates me and Ed's, but I love me and Ed's and, and she just couldn't disagree more. Yeah, I'm a transplant and have acquired the taste, but I know it doesn't work for everybody. Um, next one, uh, the flipped classroom. Uh, I think it is overrated. I, th- I think the idea is perfectly fine. And I'm I as someone who believes deeply in competency-based education and, and the need to move towards personalized and competency-based, I like the, the idea conceptually. I think what ends up happening though is it's still just shoving kids into one way of learning. It's like, great, now just go listen to me, do the lecture I would have done in class. And then in here, I'm gonna have you doing some other low level thinking. Too often it's just been that. And I'm like, that's not actually what personalized and competency-based could and should look like. Conceptually, I think it's getting to the right idea, but it's it's just not... In practice, I've seen it just be like pretty boring, not relevant, not rigorous classes still. Okay. Getting a doctorate of education as an education leader, is that over or underrated? Now you said you were moving away from the controversial ones. I think that is somewhat- I got to put you on the hot seat with some of these, right? No, that's fine. I I personally think that is somewhat overrated. I understand why- yeah, I think it's somewhat overrated. I, I just think it's something that folks look for because it makes them feel a little bit better that someone's got those letters behind their name. But I have yet to see that those are the distinguishing feature in actual leadership of of what it takes. Yeah, well, as also an- biased because I don't have one. So, you know, yeah. I'm like, great. No, all you need is a master's. Well, as an ed D dropout, I would tend to agree with you. I think, you know, I think pursuing paper for paper's sake is a little tough for me when you, you know, we only have so many years on this planet. Next one, Teaching Like a Champion, Doug Lamov's famous book. Overrated. I I think some really good practices in there, certainly. Some of them I think are, you know, time has shown that's that's part of the, we're just trying to make efficiencies in ways that are drill and kill and 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 that. But so I think there is some good that we could learn from, from the work that was happening in uh, Teach Like a Champion. But I think at its core, what that then turned into is essentially like teachers are cogs. And if I can just teach you to be the best cog, then you will, then this education thing is figured out. And I'm like, that's not actual teaching. In my mind, it's, it's, yeah, I am sad to say I've never actually had it. Wow. Okay. I know. Every time I look, it just looks too oily. Yeah. It's uh, probably good for your heart that you haven't had it. <laughs> yeah. So it, it looks too, it looks too oily, but having never had it, I'm unwilling to take a stand, but I, I guess I would say people love it. So I guess underrated, more people should eat it. Yeah. Next one, project-based learning. I think Anything that gets a name already, I worry that anyone can bastardize the thing. What I'll say is I've seen it be used to amazing effect. The idea of giving kids rigorous, relevant, large-scale projects is hugely important. Full stop. True project-based learning is not you learn a thing and then do a project on the back end. It is you are doing a complex problem to unearth learning along the way. 
in my teacher teacher ed program, we actually call it complex based learning. I think that kind of project based learning is underrated and should be done everywhere. I think it's what so much of work is, right? You get sort of an end goal and then have to figure out the process and the the project along the way. If more young people were doing that, I would say project-based learning is totally underrated and should be employed in way more spaces. PBL that we see in so many schools is like, buy this project and then just do this project with kids. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that feels that's, super that's overrated. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and so that's I that's my somewhat muddled answer. Okay, fair enough. The last one, rest in peace, Sir Ken Robinson. It's his ideas and thoughts and TED talks are those over underrated? Uh, I think they were almost before their time, and I think we are still continuing to come back to. So, so I would say underrated. I think some of the work that he was pushing around personalized learning was just a little bit before its time, and 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 I mean that more in that he talked about it as a need, and I think there were a lot of folks who rightly were bought in. I consider myself one of them. And yet we didn't have some of the structures and systems that might support us to actually do that. And so it felt kind of like, yeah, that's nice, but now what? And I think we might be, I hope we're coming to a to a world in which we might be able to actually put some of those things into practice in, in ways that we'll look back and say he was kind of prescient in, in calling for some of these things. Yeah. Let's jump to uh, some areas around consulting. Uh, the landscape of education consultants is opaque, uh, complicated. Uh, they, they're everywhere. Uh, they charge a lot. Um, and then they come into your school system, do a bunch of things, and then leave. Um, now, there is a lot of value with bringing an outsider's perspective, but then there's also this question of how do you measure the impact of someone coming outside of your organization and leaving? So I guess my question for you is, I mean, I kind of, set it up there is how do, how do we make sure that there is an impact made by these kind of well-paid consultants that come in? I love this question. I, I actually, so I'm going to answer your question directly. And then I have like an extension yeah. of this, I think. So I used to work at an organization called Transcend. We called ourselves an R&D group. I remember when I started there, I was like, but really we're consultants. And uh, the two co-founders like absolutely shut that down. And I remember thinking like, whatever, it's, it's, you know, it's just language. And, and then the longer I was at it, I was like, Oh, nope, they're right. I totally get it. Because as you named, there is a group of folks who get paid a lot of money, pop in for six weeks and then leave schools with a plan. Here's your plan. Here's what you should do. And then two years later, when nothing's different, it's very easy for the consultants to just say, you didn't do the thing we told you to do. Or you did it, but you did it poorly. At Transcend, we were like, we're going to be with you for years, not days. And we're on the hook for the results alongside you. And so we called ourselves school partners and design partners. And we're like, we are partners in this work, which means if we don't see improvements, that's on us too. And we wanted to be there by the time we actually saw those or didn't to learn alongside you and, and to take like to be part of the solution or to to understand why. So I think too often consultants sort of like fly in, fly out. Now, some of that is Transcend charged less so that we could be there for longer. Transcend was a nonprofit, which allowed us to get philanthropy so that we could still pay without charging all of it to a school, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think that's for so many consultants, that's not the case. So I would say writ large, totally agree with this premise. One, my extension of this is I see districts doing some version of this all the time where they say, great, we need to improve reading across the district. What are we going to do? We're going to take our 15 best reading teachers and make them reading specialists. And we're now going to take them out of the classroom and move them to the district office. And now they're going to support every other teacher to be a reading teacher. And I'm like, damn, like you've essentially created your own internal consulting. And every one of those reading specialists is good at what they're doing, just like all these education consultants are good, but they're popping in for like one hour to one teacher for once every three months and then popping to the next school and the next and the next. And you think about a district like Fresno Unified with 108 schools roughly, 
even 15 reading specialists can only get to every campus, even if they were just on campuses every day, once every, what are we talking about, seven days? And they're not on campuses every single day. And even if they were on campuses every single day and once every seven, they're not in every teacher. So it's like they're, we, we need to stop this mentality of investing in everyone except for teachers and actually find how are we putting more of our money directly into making teachers better at the things that teachers need to be better at rather than, ooh, we've solved this over here. That should just seep everywhere. Yeah, the proliferation of support staff and bureaucracy is a challenge, and I'm going to get to that in just a second. One more question kind of on the consulting phase or the consulting topic. Do you need a background in education in order to be a consultant in education? In other words, could we call McKinsey and just have them roll down here in their, you know, black SUVs or whatever they are, their private planes, roll up and just kind of do some kind of paternalistic assessment of the whole thing and use their business MBA from Stanford Mines and just fix things, quote unquote, or do you need to understand, Have do you need to have worked in the system in order to advise it? Great question. I had such a clear answer on the first one. I guess what I would say is it's important to remember that the way I think about this is, I'm going to start this a third time. Here it goes. I think if you are consulting around the core function of a district, which is educating kids, you better damn well be versed in actual education, which means not, I spent one year in the classroom. I know what I'm talking about. Or what I hear sometimes from folks like at McKinsey or Bain or elsewhere is like, oh, my kids are in such and such. And I'm like, cool. We all went through school. That doesn't make us experts at this thing. And- I think at the same time, what I would say is large districts have some really large, complex problems, right? How do I bus kids everywhere? What am I thinking about as it comes to feeding kids? How am I managing a budget where this is going here, et cetera, et cetera? I think there's a role to play for a McKinsey, a Bain, a, a Stanford MBA, muckety-muck, to come in and say, yep, I can actually solve that problem in ways that too often educators are like totally at a loss to figure out busing well. Yeah, um, so that's part of the challenge, right? Is a lot of these people were teachers and then are jumping into administration roles. And I mean, I've seen the curriculum and administrative credentials. It doesn't, you know, I mean, I for a while I was teaching in Chowchilla and Chowchilla is, I don't know, 15,000 people. There are three school districts in that city each with their own transportation departments. You know, if you're a McKinsey consultant, you come in there, I mean, the answers would just be obvious, but, you know, they're not obvious unless you have the background and, you know, thinking about systems theory and, and how all that stuff works, inputs, outputs, you know, how to reduce waste. You know, I think it, I think that is a different skill. So I think you're right. I do want to talk about some Fresno things though. Do you think Fresno Unified is too big? No, not necessarily. There are plenty of districts who have found ways to be successful with 70 some odd thousand students. So I think that's I think that's not a problem. I think at times I worry that Fresno Unified is, has one approach, right? We, for the longest time in Fresno Unified, talked about a guaranteed viable curriculum. And I was like, cool, but do kids at, in Southwest Fresno and Southeast Fresno and Northwest Fresno need the same guaranteed viable curriculum if they're a mm -hmm. third grader. Uh, so I think in that way, as we were trying to centralize so many things, size was a problem. Right. The reality is to, to the exact Chowchilla point, or when I was a high school principal, we were a high school district in San Jose that had seven feeder elementary school districts. And I'm like, we, they're too small is also problematic for the lack of expertise and just the, the fact that you would have so much top heavy spending across. Yeah. So, so I think that size is not our primary problem. Yeah. What, what's your take on off ramps, different schools to kind of pull kids out of, you know, a typical linear pathway through a school system. What do you think the effects are on that? And I, I mean, this is something that Fresno Unified has decided to do and, Talk to Miguel Arias about this exact subject, and he has certain thoughts. What's your perspective? By off-ramps, do you mean schools of choice? Or yeah, schools mean... of choice. You know, so you've got your Computex, you've got your different places, you've got your, 
you know, more science or STEM focused academies where kids can just kind of leave the traditional high school and go off to do something specific? Yeah, I, so I'll answer this both as a parent and then as an educator. So my girls are both at Baird right now, which is the school of choice here in Fresno Unified. My oldest is, is heading into ninth grade next year. She'll be going to Bullard. We live, you know, a couple blocks from Bullard. That's great. Cause I'm going to talk about Bullard next. <laughs> and, and, you know, I probably have a lot of thoughts about that. The, so in that way, you know, it's, we, and they started it daily, which is a school of choice, which is a charter school authorized by the district. And, and so as a parent, I'm glad that some of these choices exist as an educator and as a community member, I worry that we put so much energy into a small subset of schools that we continue to point to and say, see, things are working. And, and the educator and community member says, but I want to know it's working for all 70 some odd thousand, not just for the 700 who found their way to Baird. Um, and and I, have, I too often see that in creating these sort of off ramps in schools of choice, what the district in some ways is doing is minimizing blowback from middle-class families like myself by because things are just good enough for us. And yeah. and I, as a president and someone who cares about this city and, and folks who live here, I get pretty frustrated by that and want us to get wildly better across the board. So, so I worry sometimes that, you know, and I went to, after starting at Heaton, I ended up at Manchester and then Computech and then Edison. And and so I just have, I've seen this from the time I was a kid and it still exists today. And we need to find a way to take the things that are working in some of these other settings and sort of bring them across the, the district. Should we just ban cell phones from all schools? I have a nephew who would tell you no, who's at Bullard now. Um, we should not. Look, I think the, I was really intrigued by what they're doing there. I'd be interested to see what they're seeing. I'm less concerned about the classroom side of this because actually I think there are ways to bring technology in and I, and I don't think we should be Luddites in that side. And you and I, as we're learning, may pull out our phone at any point to, to support us in this. I think from the social side, there is so much benefit to students like lifting up and connecting with other humans. And I think having a forcing function of phones not being like a fail safe of, oh, I'm feeling anxious. So let me just look at my phone and do something on my phone is I, I'm hopeful that that might actually be whether that was the intention of this or not a huge piece of this. So, you know, from that social side, I, I think there's a real positive. I'm not, I'm not part of the like, this shouldn't be in the classroom at all. And in fact, I think there are meaningful ways to incorporate it if, if you do it well. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you know, it's like the kids that grew up in some kind of Mennonite or Amish place in the middle of nowhere and, you know, withholding everything. And then they show up to the big city and then they don't know how to handle those things. And so then they get themselves in trouble. Kids need to know how to use them. But I think we also need to not be afraid of telling them to put it away. You know, right. like there's a fear there with like kids and their phones. So Mr. Nelson's retiring. Let's say you got his job for, you decided to go in the direction of being the superintendent of Fresno Unified. And whenever there's a new president or someone in charge, it's always like the first 90 days, you know? So for you, what's, what's the first week look like on the job? What are you focused on? Man, I think I'd want to meet with principals. <laughs> this is a really big question. I weirdly want the czar job at the national level more than I want the <laughs> yeah the, the local politics level, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, guess, I guess I guess my question I'm really asking is like, what 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 area would you focus on? Like, what what would be your kind of initiative that would be important for you? Yeah. So I guess I'd come down to a few things. I would want to meet with principals and put them. Truly, truly in charge of saying, great, you have a team of awesome teachers on your site. What is your plan to go from where you are today to where you think you need to go? And what role can we in the district play to support you in doing that? I think right now the direction goes the exact opposite. District chooses what they want to do. They tell a principal, here's what we're going to do. Principals tell teachers, here's what we're going to do. Yeah, golden retrievers. I think I would want to flip that. I think I'd want to flip that the exact opposite direction 
and say, great, how, here's where you currently are. Where do you think you can get? What's that going to take and how do we support? So I think that would sort of be step number one. I think the second step is I just fundamentally believe we need to be doing way, way more to move towards personalizing education for kids and meeting them where they are. I think there's some work to be done at a centralized level to do that. So I think that would be two. And then three, you had talked about this earlier, the sort of bloat of centralized supports is is real. Linda Darling-Hammond wrote about this in The Right to Learn decades ago. We just continue to fall into the same trap. I would want to assess who is sitting downtown and how do we get as many of those people out of downtown and back onto school campuses where they are most likely to be directly with kids. And so I think that would be, those would be a, a few of the pieces that I'd, I'd want to, to do right off the bat. Yeah, that's been my reflex district people or whatever is come teach with me. You know, just come teach with me, like be in there with me, you know, like I I get that you have spreadsheets and six billion emails to reply to, but come teach with me. You know, I think it's the difference between what's urgent and what's important. And we get those confused constantly and we could spend our whole lives chasing the urgent and then we'll get to the end. And what's our eulogy going to read? Like he replied to all of his emails, like (laughs) I'm, I'm good off that. Okay. Two more hard questions before we wrap. Do you, you know, we live in a city that has a very high rate of poverty. I just finished Matthew Desmond's incredible book on poverty, which, you know, should make us all feel guilty for taking our mortgage deductions, aside, amongst other things. And, you know, kind of the conclusion that I walked from it is that kind of poverty is the first first order problem, and then education might be the second order problem. In other words, you know, if, you're, if your two daughters grew up in very difficult circumstances, you know, food, food insecurity, all the kinds of things that kind of come with poverty, you know, I think we can expect certain outcomes in the school system. Obviously, there's outliers, and we we love telling those stories, but on average, we kind of can predict what's going to come. So do you think poverty is the first order problem and that education will come along with it once we address the bigger, quote unquote, issue? I I adore this question. I As challenging as that book was, I adored uh, Poverty by America as well. I guess my answer is a little bit more complicated and and runs somewhere down the middle. When I sometimes hear educators say, well, yeah, but this kid's dealing with boom, 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 boom. My, My hackles always go up because I'm like, so should we just stop? Should we just wait until we fix poverty? And the reality is after reading the book, It's like that ain't easy either. And that's going to take decades and decades. So we can't stop doing this critical work. And the reality is for some people today, education is absolutely serving as an equalizer. And so we have to continue and we have to have amazing educators continuing to drive in that way while all recognizing that if we aren't also tackling these other systemic issues, that we will always be playing from behind and have too many students who are falling through. I think that's my first answer. The second and I'm going to agree with you real quick, Diego, yeah. because I think it's similar to like a medic on the battlefield. Like, do you wait for the war to end or do, are you going to bandage the people that are sitting right at your feet? That's right. And we have to, it's got to be a both and. But the thing that we, I desperately need is for districts to stop parading the small handful of kids for whom this has been completely transformational while not talking about the fact that for tens of thousands of students today, they desperately need Band-Aids, bandages, all the things, and they are being wildly underserved by our current system. And you too often then hear, well, but they're poor, but they're this. And I'm like, yes. And those are real kids who are going to graduate at some point with options or not. And so we've got to do everything we can while fighting on these systemic issues. It has to be a both and. But when I see districts sort of, you know, and my dad is is one of them. He's one of seven kids in his family, graduated as a farm worker, went to a great school, all the things and people love to hold him up. But then I think about my theos, my theos and, and, I'm like, the system, the same system educated all seven of them 
And it transformed one life, which has then transformed mine, which has then transformed my girls. But for my cousins, like they're not on the same trajectory because my dad's life has changed. And, and so we, we love celebrating the small handful and we need to do a better job of, of recognizing that, you know, all these kids are ours to take care of. Yeah. And this is the last question I always ask everybody and it's a little complicated, but I think it's important. You know, we all come to, we all look at Fresno from a particular vantage point. And I like to think about how the industry we've chosen to spend our life working in shows us something about a place that others can't see that work in other industries. So the, as a teacher and a librarian, I see, you know, problem solutions, the composition of a city differently than someone that works in agriculture, for example. So how do you think you see Fresno differently given the discipline that you've chosen to work in? I'm going to answer that question and, and one other about how I see Fresno differently. One is when you spend time with young people, it is impossible to not see their unlimited potential. I mean, you just time and again see young people who are brilliant, who are passionate, who who are going to like change the world. And so I'm I'm hopeful in a way that I think sometimes people who spend time and only read about schools in the paper can feel really downtrodden. I'm actually incredibly hopeful because young people are amazing. And I'm like, if you just knew and could see, and yes, we're not tapping into it, but God, it's there. So so in that way, I'm I'm incredibly hopeful. I think the other thing for me that's been really interesting is having grown up here and then left and then come home. I think I also, sometimes I find for folks who who have just been here, there's a sense of this is as good as it's going to get. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just see a different world too. And, and I wish you could see that same potential that we have to actually be something wildly different. And so I think that's the other way in which my experiences having been here and known this place, but then seen other places has helped me just see the potential we have as, as a city. And sometimes it's our lack of imagination and belief that actually holds us back more than, than anything else. We always end in the same place. What are a few books you'd recommend to listeners? All-time favorites. So I, I read, I typically switch fiction and, and nonfiction. In the nonfiction realm, all-time favorites are The End of Average by Todd Rose. Is just like a mind-blowing book. So I would absolutely put the, the End of Average on there. And The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt is just like someone suggested it to me after the 2016 election to better understand what was happening. And, and I read it and felt like I, I finally got what was happening in the world. So those are my two favorite nonfiction. And fiction, there is a book called The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. It is the first book of a trilogy. It's the first book that man ever wrote. It in the like science fiction fantasy world, it 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 most folks who know about this stuff rank it right up there with like Lord of the Rings, even as his very first book. I'll just caution: it's the first book of a trilogy he's written too, but it's been a decade since he wrote the last one, so it is not yet completed. And and for those people who like to wait until they're all done, you may still be waiting for a while. But that book is killer. It's amazing. Yeah, it's always scary. And I feel this way about Robert Caro's big biographies of Lyndon Johnson. He's working on the last one right now and he's in his 80s or 90s. And I'm a little bit scared we're not going to finish, but you know, I, I, I feel the exact same way. You mentioned before we started recording that you're starting a new job. What kinds of projects are you excited about uh, that you're going to be working on there? Yeah, so I'm going to be at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching doing educational transformation. So we are going to be looking for schools, districts, states who are really trying to think about time and learning differently. And so, and what's really great about that place is, is it's got enough name recognition that folks are really coming to us at the Carnegie Foundation to say, we're thinking about and trying this. And we we see, we see ourselves sort of coming in and and helping support them and enable that. So, you know, getting to do some cool work in various states, learning about how are you thinking about giving students different kinds of learning experiences, assessing in different ways, rolling all of that up so that students just have 
wildly different experiences and, and uh, better experiences. So that it's really fun to see and exciting to see these pockets of just true innovation and excellence. And the real challenge is going to be how do we take pockets and blow those into scalable solutions? But I'm excited to get in there and try and figure that out alongside educators across the country. Well, we're excited for you. And uh, when you become the education czar, we'll have you back on uh, to talk with us about how that's going. I really appreciate you talking with me. Yeah, appreciate the time. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.